Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. And the TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Dr. Preston Klein, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffat, and myself, along with our guest, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you're on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the TeamCast. This is Dr. Preston Klein. And as you know, in our work with teams, mission-critical teams around the world, we work with a number of different teams, including Wildland Fire. If you're a U.S. citizen and you live east of the Mississippi, you're probably not aware of the scope or history or intensity of Wildland Fires and the way they've changed over the last several decades. What we're going to do today is we're going to interview a legend in the field of Wildland Fire, a man named Rowdy Muir. Rowdy Muir, if you met him, he's older now. He's retired from the Forest Service, and he is now running a ranch of cattle out west. Straight up cowboy, if you met him, and that's how he comes across, and he's plain spoken. He is unique in that he was one of the first incident commanders, incident management teams, to deal with what is now regularly called the wilderness urban interface when a wildland fire first started hitting an urban environment happened in 1998 and happened in Florida Everglades. Florida basically caught fire. Some of you might remember this. And Rowdy's team was brought in to to address it. Now, what you need to understand is that prior to this, or a little bit of history here, is that wildland fire tactics were developed in the 1950s, earlier than that in the 30s and 40s, but primarily in the 50s after World War II. And the main tool for fighting wildland fire is what's called a hotshot crew. There are also smoke jumpers that deal with smaller fires. But the workhorse of wildland fire are what are called hotshot crews. And it's a small crew of about 20 people or so that go out with hand tools and dig trenches to create fire breaks in forests so that when the forest is burning, it gets to a place where there's no fuel and it stops. And it gives time for nature to put rain and other things on it and put out the fire. And that's the tools that we've used since the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and we continue to use today. But in 1998, and oh, just importantly, you understand that most wildland fires prior to the 90s were happening in remote settings. They're happening out west in forested timber forests so there was, they were encountering houses, but not large urban settings. But in 1998, Florida catches fire. You've got Disney World. You've got the Daytona 500. You've got a bunch of things happening. And all of a sudden, there's this huge, vast areas on fire. So they sent wildland firefighters. And it was the first time that wildland firefighters and urban firefighters, folks that would rush to your house and that sort of thing, arrive at the same place to deal with this basically national disaster, this this huge event like a hurricane. The problem is, is that the expectations are the time is, well, it's a fire, just put it out. But something of that size scope you really can't do. It's important to note that in 1985, the average amount of fire wildland fire size was 2.5 million acres. By 2020, we've been close to 10 million acres. So the size of the fires are increasing. The amount of fires are increasing. And however you want to talk about it, 
the nature of the fires, the ecology behind the fires is changing. Part of that is due to weather. Part of that is due to long periods of not burning. And there's, so there's a lot of tinder on the ground. We've all heard of this. The problem is, is that a lot of people said, well, you shouldn't build in a place that might catch fire. Well, where it might catch fire has changed. So it's no longer one of these things where we can blame people. It's now a situation where we're using 1950s technology to deal with a 2020 problem. We're under-resourced. We're losing staff, right? And we also, our assets aren't built for it. We used to have a fire season, about 120, 150 days a year. We now have a fire year. The problem with that is that the way things used to work with our air attacks, so they're, you know, like uh, where they would drop water from the sky, is that they would spend half the American fire season in America and then the Australian fire season in Australia. But now we, we have fire years. There are no seasons. None of the system was designed for that. But it's important to take a moment to find out how all of this happened. And so now I'm going to introduce you to Rowdy Muir, who was there at the time and is helping to kind of think about, along with many others, the kinds of things we need to do. This problem isn't going away. It is getting worse, but there are things that we can do. So thank you. Welcome back to the TeamCast. Today, it is my honor uh, to spend some time talking to Rowdy Muir. Rowdy is kind of a legend in wildland fire. He'll be embarrassed that I say that, but it's true. He got his start in 1986, running a chainsaw with a Type 2 crew, dealing with wildland fire, and then retired in 2019 as a district ranger. He worked his way all the way up from the ground all the way to the top and happened to be alive during some of the big changes that we've seen in modern times with wildland fire, specifically the wildland fire urban interface in what it's called, and just the way that we've slowly, as a country, transition from dealing with big fires out west where nobody lived to now we're dealing with fires that come right up against Los Angeles or as we'll talk about in the Everglades of Florida. And that's changed both fire behavior. It's changed the way that we manage fires. It changes the way that we think about sort of big natural disasters or natural events in the U.S. And so this, this conversation, while it's going to be centered on wildland fire, and forest fires. What you as a listener should be thinking about is where there are parallels in healthcare or in the military or in tactical law enforcement, those areas that have also seen big changes over the last 20 or 30 years, and some of the underlying changes that are kind of creeping up towards us like frogs in the hot water kind of a deal. And so with that, Rowdy, I, I wanted to say if you just take a second and introduce yourself to the audience a little bit, and then I'm going to start getting into the questions. Well, thanks for having me. I think it's, this is important work, and it certainly opened my eyes to some of my decision-making through some of my years of experience and why I did things the way I did. So I, so I appreciate the Mission Critical Team Institute for helping me open my eyes to some of the things that that took place during my career. And, you know, I always thought, you know, why I did certain things and, and to get an understanding. So again, I started in 1986 with the Forest Service, got a job in the timber program running a chainsaw. So chainsaw kind of fit in my hands for most of my younger days. And then Worked for the Forest Service for about 
28 years, and then five of those years I spent with the BLM. So 33 years total with the federal firefighting agencies. So yeah, you know, I started on a hand crew running a saw. I, I like to run the chainsaw because I could set my own pace and a crew could follow behind me and I could either work faster or slower depending on how I felt I needed to go. I always had my head up in the air looking around, which helped me understand some fire behavior. I think when we get on a hand crew, sometimes we're heads down, butts up, and we don't see what's around us. And I think a chainsaw allowed me to see things that a lot of people didn't see fire behavior-wise. Worked myself up to a crew boss, which you can probably relate to this, babysitting 20 people on a crew wasn't my forte. I wanted to get out of that and move up. So I went into a division supervisor where I really, the division group supervisor is where I really, I think, excelled in my fire career. Uh, I got to understand leadership and different resources, learning to work with all kinds of different people. And then, you know, up into operations section chief on a type two geographical team and then a type one national team then on up to an incident commander of both type twos and type one teams and then ended my career as an area commander. So that's that's pretty much it in a nutshell. So some of those terms are going to be foreign to some of our listeners, so we'll break them down. But what I want to do now is take you back to 1986, right? And so when you talk about a hand crew, what what was it like? What were the things that you were worried about as you were running that chainsaw? Tell me a little bit of how many people were around you, how big are the fires that we're talking about, and what was your no-kidding day-to-day role? So hand crews, basically 20 individuals, one being a crew boss, sometimes one or two sawyers, and a couple of swampers, depending on what kind of timber you were cutting that would remove the fuel for you. And then the rest were just digging line in the dirt. You know, they either had plastic or shovels. And, and that was it. You know, you started... You work in a division, which is a geographical boundary, and you went from one point to another, you know, just putting in fire line or suppressing fire. And, and typically, you know, it's direct attack, one foot in the black, just try to suppress the fire uh, using those kind of tactics. With some support from a helicopter, you, you know, with a bucket drop here and there. But in those days, it was pretty simple. You know, the value at risk was you and your 20-person crew. Those are the things you had to worry about. You moved from point A to point B. At the end of the day, you were done. You went to sleep, got up in the morning, did the same thing. I mean, pretty simplistic as far as is what the task was. The season lasted for how long? The fire season roughly lasted how long in 1986? Well, so in those days, there were fire seasons. We typically started... April, May, a lot of seasonal employees came on. So the federal government has what they call seasonal employees that only work for 90 to 120 days. So from May till September, mostly during the summertime when college students were out of school. So there was 120 days. If you were lucky, you you went 150 days. But those were seasonal employment and that's basically what your resources were made up of. Hotshot crews, engine crews, type two hand crews were mostly seasonal. You had some overhead on a crew that was probably three permanent employees. 
the crew boss and the squad bosses. The rest were seasonal employees. You know, and that's that's still the case. We still have a seasonal workforce that's a firefighting group that works 120, 150 days. It's a seasonal employment. Except my understanding is that the fires are no longer seasonal. The fires are now gone from fire season to fire years. And that's correct. And that, you know, and that's part of some things that need to change is how much funding, how many resources do you actually, how many hotshot crews do you actually need from December to January? Yeah. And so going back to something you said just a little bit ago, guys are, are men and women because there are men and women on these teams. And they're, they're no kidding. The forest in front of them is on fire. And when you say one foot in the black, you mean that behind you is a already burned over area that you can retreat to because there's no fuel there in case the fire blows up. Is that accurate? Well, it's, so training tells us that the closer we are to the fire, the easier it is to step into the black. Yeah. If we're digging indirect line, the further away from the fire you are, the chances of the fire behavior picking up and overrunning you is higher. It's a higher risk than if you're right next to it. That's interesting. I didn't know that. So you're actually better off by being closer to the fire than farther away from it. Personally, that's correct. And that's the training that we have been instilled upon us is one foot in the black direct attack and and you know that that's training all the way through your your years of fire experience clear up until you retire i mean i mean that's still still today the training is one foot in the black direct attack so interesting so we're going to fast forward a little bit so you're raised in this environment where how old are you in 1986 mask like when how old were you when you started Oh, I was a little older. I was 27. Okay. So you're 27 years old. You're on this team with 20 folks. You've got a chainsaw. You're working for a few years. You're probably in a remote setting, I'm guessing. There's not a lot of other resources, as you said. You're just looking after your folks. And this goes on for a while, and you get promoted. And more and more, you're starting to get involved in what are called IMTs or incident management teams. For those listening, an IMT is a team not only used for big forest fires, but for example, when the Challenger incident went down or Katrina happened, you know, an IMT. IMT will get deployed to oversee that. And they go into an area and they basically build a little city. They've got like accountants and they've got communications people. And it's a whole mission control to oversee a big event. The higher the incident management team, meaning moving from two to one, the more severe or more complex the problem. And so Rowdy, as you're moving through your career, we're leading up to this period where you're moving from these remote fires where there's not a lot of other humans around. Maybe there's pasture, maybe there's forest, but there's not towns or cities per se, not a lot of them anyway. And then you're called into Florida for, my understanding is a fire that's happening in the Everglades or or in the middle section of Florida. Yeah, you're, you're correct. Most of the time, so there's initial attack and there's extended attack. Okay. And sometimes the fires are a day, you catch them in a day. Sometimes they go three or four days. Sometimes they are called what was known then as project fires, which were long lasting events that wasn't going to go out in 30 or 60 days. And so the transition from a five day assignment to a 30 or 60 day assignment is totally different than what is expected. You know, you you come out of a world of 
oh, let's put this fire out in four or five days. And now all of a sudden you're on an incident that's going to go 60, 90, 180 days. You know, who knows how long it could be. And so, yeah, yeah, you know, and I think 1988 during the Yellowstone years were some of the some of the first time we saw complexity with large fires where there was multiple teams and area commands. And, and then, you know, it ran all the way through its course. And specifically for us, fires were in the West. They were in Idaho. They were in Utah. They were in Nevada, you know, Washington, Oregon, uh, California. Pretty rare that incident management teams, national incident management teams, would mobilize from the West to the East. So this was all new. You, you know, you talk about in your research about navigating uncertainty. Wow. This yeah. is like a whole different venue. You know, something that we as an incident management team had never seen before in our careers. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this is a situation where you've got an existing problem, wildland fire, a hotshot crews and smoke jumpers that were created basically right around World War II using the technology of World War II with basically small groups of people to manage big fires to keep them from, well, to kind of try to contain them. And and like you said, you could usually do that in a short amount of time. Now, because of the sort of the policies to repress fires, as many people know, we've all got all this undergrowth that's built up. And so now fires, instead of being four or five days, like you said, they're weeks or months long and they're burning hotter than they used to. And so this is now leading us to a situation where you've got what you're sort of this navigating uncertainty, this changing problem set. You're now dealing with with fires that are approaching urban environments and urban environments for everyone who's listening. Obviously, a fire department, your local fire department is trained really well, actually, to fight structural fires, to fight a fire in your house. That's a very different problem than fighting a fire that's in a forest. And so now you've got these two different organizations, wildland fire and urban fire, now starting to bump into one another. Yeah. And, you know, Florida was interesting in the fact that we weren't assigned incidents, ongoing fires. We were assigned counties. Okay. So it's like, okay, your incident management team will suppress every fire within Orange County, Rivard County, Seminole County, and also Osceola County. So, wow. Okay. Some of those counties are fairly large and incorporate, you know, some fairly large cities. And you're working with some fire departments that are very large. So not only just take upon the fire aspect, but have counties and suppress every fire within those counties. During that time in 98, there were over 5,000 fires. You can picture this. Back in those days, there were plenty of resources to suppress those fires in 1986. Yeah. And when you go to a place like Florida, where there's 5,000 fires, you, you don't have the resources that you need. And even today, you see that in California where the resources are gobbled up rather quickly. And in some situations, an incident management team could be left with minimal resources. Yeah. And so the decision-making process is totally different from one foot in a black direct attack to what is it that we can do with a limited amount of resources for a long duration incident. 
Yeah. So just going back to this point, so the fire in Florida, this was the 1998 fire. What position were you in when you got the call to say you'd be going to Florida? I was on an incident management team in operations section T. Okay. Has oversight of all the tactical suppression side of the fire. So all the resources work for operations outside of logistics, plans, and finance. Everything else is operational. So basically you work with planning to put a plan together. You dispatch resources out to divisions. So you run the whole gamut of fire suppression, the tactical portion. And where were you personally living at that time? Where were you deployed from? I was living where I'm living now in Wyoming. And we went to Tallahassee Area Command assigned us those four counties. And we ended up with an incident command post in Cocoa Beach. Okay. You can try to realize coming from a two-house town in Wyoming to Cocoa Beach, Florida. Yeah. So let, let's actually dig into that. So, because this is part of the issue, right? So Rowdy, here you are an experienced wildland fire. You've been dealing with remote fires west of the Mississippi. You get tasked with an IMT, an incident management team to be based in Cocoa, Florida, an urban setting full of a lot of wealthy folks. Right around there is Disney World, Daytona 500, all sorts of like tourist attractions. And they tell you in these four counties, we need to put out all these fires. You've moved from fires out west, which is a couple of days, to now you're walking into an environment where there's 5,000 fires, and you're dealing with all the politics, the county politics, the state politics, the local politics. So what's that first day look like for you? Personally, I don't know how I made it through that duration. It just starts out with trying to get the agencies that you're in command with to understand your delegation of authority and who give that to you and what your responsibilities are and how you have to try to work with the state and the counties and the elected officials and everybody else. That's time consuming just to get a group of people on the same page. You know, so for the first first day or two, you're trying to fight fire with deploying resources and trying to give them direction. On the other hand, you're trying to work with the, the highway patrol, the county sheriffs, the mayors, the fire chiefs, the county commissioners. You know, there's a whole other gamut of things that need to be taken care of in those first two or three days on top of suppression. Yeah. And so when you were giving out direction to suppression, given the different nature of this kind of a fire and kind of an environment, what were your sort of go-to rules or principles that we're using to like give directions to folks? So I kind of split some responsibilities, like initial attack coming from out West. I, I don't know where Mims and Scottsmore and Cocoa Beach are. And so, so we kind of delegated some initial attack responsibilities to some local you know, Florida Department of Forestry folks, so they could kind of move resources. You know, we put a group of initial attack resources in a pool, give those to those state folks where they could mobilize them through initial attack because, you know, sometimes through the night, you'd have a thousand lightning strikes overnight. And the next morning, you would have no idea where you have initial attack. So, so that was kind of the first thing is to split the 
the large fires from the initial attack and then try to just divide and conquer is yeah. is kind of what we started out trying to do. Now, once again, out west, I imagine that when you're running an incident management team in the middle of some forest somewhere, there's not a lot of press or a lot of other folks showing up to give you, uh, to ask you to give press conferences and uh, talk to the communities and everything else. But I imagine in an urban setting with a lot of houses, there's probably a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of people wanting information. Was that something you were prepared for? Was that new? What, what was that like? My fear was always that I was going to be in a complex situation in a large residential area working with a lot of communities and as a division group supervisor and an operator you really you have a little training on this is going to happen but not really enough to say you were prepared for anything i was not prepared for anything that i came into other than the fact that i'm there to fight fire everything else just reared its head hourly yeah. You know, and things that you would never expect. And can you give me an example of what that was? Well, something like that was, you know, a gentleman grabbed me one day and wanted to know who saved his garages and let his house burn down. And, you know, I said, I take full responsibility for that. I, you know, I did the best I could. And he gave me a hug and he said, I'm glad you saved my garage because I have two airboats in there that are worth, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I'm so glad that you saved my garage. You know, who would expect something like that? You know, uh, an individual riding out of somewhere, a horseback, wanting to know how he could save his house back in there. And you hand them a couple of fusees and say, put a line around your house and burn out from it. You, you know, yeah. those kind of things. You know, another individual grabbed me by the shirt, wanting to, you know, punch me in the face, you know. And yeah. I, I just said, if it makes you feel better, go for it, you know. Yeah. You know, he calmed down, but, you know, you know, it was just one thing after another. You know, our radio communication at the best was bad. Because of the vegetation and the flatness of Florida, there's no repeater system. You know, out west, you can put a repeater on a mountaintop, and you can talk for miles and miles. In Florida, you can talk for a couple of blocks. Yeah. And so, you know, we'd have to rent cranes to put a repeater on to lift the repeater up high enough to where we could use it as a repeater. You know, things like that was every minute something uh, coming at you like that. So again, you know, the process of, of trying to, you know, go from detection to recognition to reaction to response, you have to be able to do that fairly quickly. Yeah. And in our organization, there are many people that can't do that, yeah. that, that can't go between those back and forth consistently for many hours and many days. Yeah. But to be fair to your earlier point, you're taking somebody who's dealing with the complexity of fire, which is hard enough and managing crews. And suddenly you're adding all of this other stuff, trouble with communication, politics, press conferences, just all of that stuff, urban stuff, buildings, the public. Those are a lot of things to try to manage hour by hour, as you were saying. And so it's sort of extraordinary to me because I think of this particular fire in 98 is the first time that the Forest Service and others got a real wake up call that the fires were, were showing up in places that they hadn't been historically. Well, and, and back there, there, 
their initial pack process is unload some tractor plows, put a line around it, and then go to the next one. Well, during this year, you put a line around it. If you didn't stay there and babysit it, it went outside your line and it continued to move. And then you were back suppressing the same initial attack fire that you didn't put out to begin with. So even local folks were, were struggling with their initial attack efforts. And because of the drought situation, you, you know, water was extremely low. It wasn't a lot of water in ponds for people to draft water out of and those kind of things. It's a crazy environment because if you think about it, even to suppress a fire using water, everything's on a well because the surface water is so so high that people just put a well in and they hook it to power. Well, when the power goes out, you don't have no water. Right. Uh, those are things that's like, okay, well, this house is going to catch on fire. We'll run over there, turn the tap on, get the hose, put the water out. Well, we're all on pumps. And we have no power. You know, those are, you know, other things that you just don't comprehend. You know, another example was one day I I just had to shut I-95 down, which is the major corridor north and south. It was like pulling teeth. Matter of fact, the governor gave me a call personally and told me I was not going to shut I-95 down. And we had a debate about, the longer it's going to take to shut it down, the more traffic, the more people are going to get killed on that interstate. So the longer he wanted to have a conversation with me, the more people were going to lose their lives. And part of the reason for that was is Daytona 500 was going to happen. And, and there was no way they were going to shut that down, you know. And that's the only time in that history that that race got moved to a different day. You, you know, so there are things like that. You close the I-95 down, then you decide you need to evacuate some towns. Well, how do you evacuate towns when you have an interstate that's shut down? You know, there's just things on top of one another. So just if I remember correctly, when you told me this story before, there was also a press conference, I believe, where you kind of told people, because in your mind, you were like, I'm going to hold it at the highway. And I'll deal with it then because historically the way that you fought fires before that seemed like a reasonable thing to do at the time. So there was probably an emotional impact of that conversation as well for you. Well, I had many community meetings standing on a tree stump in the middle of a town and trying to explain the complexity of what was going on to those people that lived in those communities. They had no understanding of, of, you know, being run out of their houses or being evacuated. And, you know, where were the resources to put these fires out? So, yeah. So did you take responsibility? Yes. And just taking responsibility is a huge workload in itself to the extent that you're not willing to flight. You're willing to stay and fight till the bitter end. And I had to recognize, and I, I wish uh, a lot of people could get to the point where they understood the flight process is that we can't do no more here. Yeah. We, we are exhausted. It's time for us to retreat and to gather to fight another day. And I can tell you that if I can get wrapped up in that, a lot of people can get wrapped into that, yeah. that thought process, the 
that I am responsible and I'm going to stay here till the bitter end. I come to the point where I just told people, matter of fact, I went out and cut the chain link fence from that some of those communities so we could get onto the interstate. Because, you know, again, in the West, if you went on the interstate, you just pull out and get on it, you know? Yeah. We don't have on, on ramps and off ramps every four or five miles. So I actually went and cut chain link fence with a pair of pruning shears and rolled the fence back and told people when I pull the plug, this is the way we're getting out to the interstate and this is the way we're going to get away and regroup. If I had not done that, I don't think we could have got all of our resources. Plus, you know, at some point in time, there were over a hundred structural engines in those communities. Yeah. And to evacuate that many structural engines plus your own resources, get them to an on-ramp and get them onto an interstate, there was, it was just wasn't going to happen. You know, so those are, you know, there was just some of the things that were, were going on. So, again, I don't know how you put it together of, uh, of how that decision-making process goes from fire suppression to now this complex of, of other issues yeah. coming, coming multiple times all the time. So what I think is so fascinating about this story and the reason, Rowdy, I wanted to get you on and one just I think the world of you, and I think I'm so impressed by what your, your career, but I'm thinking back to this situation where you're on the phone with the governor of Florida. You're saying to him, Hey, look, if we have fire that is moving fast and is going to is going to go over the highway and if we don't shut it down, people are going to die in their cars on the highway. And the governor's like, we got Daytona 500 happening. We can't shut it down because in his world, to your point, he doesn't really understand wildland fire because they're east of the Mississippi. This is not something that's in their history. It's not something in their cultural sort of knowledge or way of knowing in the world. And. You're doing the best you can, but you're against a problem that has evolved many different evolutions from what you were doing in Wyoming and Idaho. And so now you're in Cocoa Beach, you're at your command center, and you're realizing, I may have to leave this command center. We may have to retreat from this area. And to do that, I actually have to cut the fence in order to get my people out under the highways before we get burnt over. And so you you walk out of your office, you take some pruning shears and you just cut the fence and say, just in this act of, you know, I thought we could draw the line here, but clearly this is a bigger problem than just, you know, we don't have all the space of Wyoming and Idaho to move around. We're constrained here and we've got to figure out how to do this a different way. Is that a fair way to say that? I'm, I'm saying back the stuff that I've heard from you, but I want to make sure that I'm, I'm saying it fairly. No, that, that's exactly right. You go back, get in your vehicle, take road, whatever, and you're out of here. In that situation, you can't see where you're going. You don't know where one road goes to another one. The vegetation is so thick, you don't know that there's a house a block away because you can't see it. You don't know these things uh, unless you're a local that lives there. I mean, I work with the fire department chiefs and the county sheriffs and, you know, to try to get the interstate closed down. And then that word went to the governor. And you have to remember, because of communication problems, VHF and UHF, I had, to, I had three different radios. Fire department's working on UHF. 
you're working on VHF. They, they don't know what. So to talk to them, you're on a whole different radio. Nobody hears that conversation but you and them. VHF, you're talking to your resources. Fire departments don't know that you're talking to them. And then I had two different phones, my personal phone that I could use to talk to my incident command post, and then a phone that was used for anybody else to call that number. So, you know, you're trying to manage two radios and two phones. And then, you know, on top of that, with the interstate closed, trying to get to and from the incident command post to the incident, we had to come up with a a way to be able to blow past the roadblocks and to get to where you were going. It was just crazy. And, and the 911 system, so this was what was going on with 911, is if you were talking to a person that owned a residence, and they said, how come you're not here protecting my residence? We say, well, we're actually suppressing wildfire in another place. And when fire gets here, we'll try to do the best we can. So they would pick up the phone and call 911, and they would say, my house is being threatened with fire. So 911 would dispatch fire departments to that residence and find out that fire wasn't anywhere near that residence. But then on the same time, another 911 would call in, and they would move from that residence to another residence. So the 911 system, it was overkill. And so what ended up happening was a group of structure protection would be in a small community protecting homes. They'd get dispatched to another one. By the time they got there, those houses had burned down. And then when they returned back to the ones they were protecting, they had burned down. So they were losing double the amounts of homes because of the 911 system people being, being able to dispatch. You know, you know, we think of fire trucks. We're talking structural ladder trucks yeah you know in and around these communities and i've never seen nothing like that you know my definition of a local fire truck is a six seven hundred gallon truck with a with a driver and a couple of people riding inside of it i've never seen ladder trucks and those kind of things so you know that was really really hurting us too is the mobilization of those resources which you try to help them out but again that's their jurisdiction that's their job you you know they lost 68 vehicles during that time wow and so as you think about now sort of bringing us forward and you think about we've talked about it a few times since i've known you but when you look back on sort of the early part of your career and and then growing into this wildland urban interface, what we're seeing now in California and other places where we're seeing big wildland fires because of the suppression of fire with all these fuels, but also just some changing dynamics. You've got this traditional system that was built in World War II with seasonal folks. Now fires are going year round. Now they're starting to, to bump into cities and cities and towns what are the things that you personally think about in terms of what are the kinds of things that we need to do better at? Like if you're king for a day, Rowdy, what are the kinds of things you'd, you'd start recommending immediately? Our decision-making support training, whatever you want to call it really lacks. So when we first started looking at the leadership courses, I was on the original task force to go to Quantico to meet with the Marine Corps and to really lay out leadership, because up until that point, there wasn't really any leadership courses. And so, you know, we developed the 180, 280 
380, 480, 580 curriculum for a progression in leadership. But we started with the L380. So we started in midpoint and built a program that for me was to start training people at the fire line level to make decisions. And what I envisioned was, as you're familiar with this, take a group of kids out, work their guts out for 10 hours a day, put them through many scenarios, wet, cold, tired, hungry, and have them make decisions in front of their peers. And we found that, I'm just totally amazed at the decisions that were made during this stressful, cold, tired, or hot, dry, whatever it becomes, strenuous time when decisions are critical to be made. Very interesting part of my career is to see that, see that change. And we saw it even at the advanced level, Preston, you're aware of this, at the National Advanced Incident Management Training, we have people in 20, 30 year careers that came there in a scenario, hot and heavy situation that failed. They couldn't make decisions. You know, they needed the 70% of the information to make a decision. And to be honest with you, you know this, that's gone away. We have no more get 70% of the information to make a decision. You're lucky if you get 5% of the information. You know, there's just decisions that have to be made. So I, I would say I would really like to start with some kind of decision-making process. And the reason I say that, too, is because Back in, in my day, the old district rangers and forest supervisors were on those districts and forests for many years. They understood fire. They understood what they wanted. They understood how you were going to go suppress them. They had this knowledge and understanding of fire because they, that was part of their career growing up. Nowadays, we have district rangers, forest supervisors, district managers, area managers, park superintendents. We, we have a, a variety of managers in agencies that don't have a fire background. Some of them's an oil and gas background. Some of them's a timber background, range. So there's a variety of, of expertise, not necessarily fire. In 1986, when you got a job, your secondary position was fire. You were, you were told you're going to get red carded and you're going to be on a fire crew. That's not the case anymore. And so this decision-making is also on the agency or manager's responsibility because now they're making the decisions of how they want incident management teams to manage incidents with or without any knowledge of fire suppression, hurricanes, floods, or whatever the case may be. That's the reason why I really push to get agency administrators into that course is to help them get experience in what IMTs go through and the decision-making process. That's the key to the change in how we're going to suppress fires down the road or manage incidents. Complex incidents is it starts with those managers. That's who gives you the delegation of authority to carry out whatever, whatever they want you to carry out. And, and some need guidance and direction to help get you to the end state. That's one aspect of what I think really needs change in the organization. 
The other is that our training curriculum in fire suppression has not changed since the early days of the Forest Service. A long time ago, we had a, a course in Urban Interface. It was a 24-hour course, and it was a minimal discussion. You know, that, that's what it was about Urban Interface. Our training has not changed to meet today's complexity of incident management. You know how hard it is to get a hotshot crew to be patient and allow a fire to burn on its own? Yeah. Almost unheard of. Yeah. If they're not out there shooting flares and digging line and running eight, you know, because that's our training. That's how we're taught. But we've not gotten to the point of patience. Yeah, Patience is not in the vocabulary of wildfire suppression. Rowdy, it's, it's really funny. I'll jump in there. It, one of the things about working with mission critical teams is that whether it's tactical law enforcement, military and shoot houses or firefighters with firehouses or wildland fire, one of the questions I'll ask them as I'm sitting there observing or working with the teams, I'll say, hey, do you ever give them a problem where the, the answer is don't go in the building or don't attack? And almost all the time they just stare at me. What do you mean? I mean that there are circumstances where moving forward is the wrong answer. Do you ever give them that scenario? No, we're throttled down all the time, buddy. We're at the elite level. I'm like, okay, just something to think about. And to, and to your point, last couple of scenarios I've done with some of the communities is we get to a point where we're closing the roads and we're evacuating. But what does the fire department want to do? They want to rush in and save something. And I'm like, I don't understand if we're evacuating people and we're closing highways and we're putting people out of there for safety, why is it that you are going to turn red lights and sirens on and you're going to blast through a roadblock to go save a house? You know, this is that discussion about flight or fight. There's a point where you've got to say exactly what you're saying. I don't need to go there. And we've had this discussion in Florida I thought there was many days where I could have just said, we are not going out of this incident command post today. Yeah. We are going to sit here and let things happen. But that's not our behavior. Our behavior yeah. is we go do what we what we can do. Sadly, we've certainly had incidents in wildland fires where urban structural firefighters will die as they're trying to do what they're trained to do, which is fight structural fires, but not understanding just the sheer ferocity of a wildland fire, and they'll get caught out in the wrong place and get burnt over. Well, I wrote a paper several years back about this ownership yeah. and this responsibility, and I found that... We lose more lives to people that have ownership. Yarnell, you can go on California, Oregon, Washington. We are losing local resources that have ownership and responsibility to that local community, that local forest, that local recreation area. I see more and more of that happening now than ever before. You know, on my district, I had three individuals lost their lives. They were local. They, they lived here, just trying to protect what they considered their own. Yeah. And I see that more and more with fatalities. We're going to more situations where it's the local individuals that got themselves into trouble. And I, and I really think it's a mindset of 
I am paid and I have a responsibility to protect this community. You, you know, I fell forward in a community that I didn't live in in Florida. You know, I got to know the town people really well. And my mindset was, I'm going to do everything I can to protect this community because of the friendships that I made and the people I knew. And I had to come to a point where I'm sorry, you, you know, it's no longer no longer my task. My task is to save my own life and my own resources and to live to fight another day. And, you know, that's another change that we need to instill upon this wildland fire suppression organization that we don't have to go running in guns a-blazing and there's time to step back and really think about what we're doing. And I, I don't know how we get that type A personality, that group of individuals that are so highly organized and want to do good and work hard and how we get that to slow down. I think, you know, of all the trainings I've been to around the world, the very best one I've ever been to in support of the Forest Service was the South Canyon or Storm King staff ride. And the reason it was so impactful for me is because some of the folks that had survived that fire were teaching on that course that day. And for our listeners, the scenario is this. We're in a canyon um, that's going up, uh, going uphill into the mountains, and it's where the fire had happened that some firefighters had died a few years prior. And some of the people who survived that fire were teaching the course. The students didn't know that, though. And so what had happened was these hotshot crews, they're all, if you remember back to when you were 18, 19, or 20, and what Rowdy is talking about, like, I'm smarter than they were. Yeah, they died, but I wouldn't because I'd make better decisions kind of fallacy. And so what they do, which is super fascinating, is... They take these hotshot crews through the, the brush up this, this hill and they describe to them what had happened that day. But then they give them cards and they say, here's all the data that you have on that day and that moment, right? Do you keep going? And as a group, they have to decide, do we stop here? Or do we keep going? And invariably on that day, every team was like, no, we'd keep going. And they get to a point, and I'll never forget this. One of the instructors steps out of the line and rolls up his sleeves to where all his arms scars from all the that fire that day when he was one of the survivors scarred his arms. And he says, look, I was one of the survivors of this fire. And I can tell you, we made it to exactly where you are right now, physically where you are when we realized that the fire had caught up to us. And you need to get over that ridge in the next, I think it was 60 seconds or you'll die. And they all didn't take it seriously. And he pulled out a stopwatch and said, go. And most of them didn't make it. Running uphill at altitude with gear is not something is simple to do. And that moment for many of them in the after action review, when they realized that they didn't make the ridge in time and that they would have died that day, was one of those moments that brought home your point in a way I've rarely seen done anywhere else as impactful. And so there are some things right now that the Forest Service are doing, at least on that level, that is best in class. And I think what we need to do is find ways to not only do it with them, but to your point, is to continue doing the great work at NAFRI and other places to try to get the folks that don't have a background in fire that think about it like they're listening to this podcast, this team cast. They're they're you know they're sipping coffee and they're comfortable. They're not cold, wet, tired, and hungry. And they're like, well, it's not that complicated. Just do this. And they don't understand that in that moment, everything's complicated. What do they say about war? War is easy, but everything that's easy is hard <laughs> or something like that, but it's amazing. So I just, I wanted to open that up to you, Rowdy. 
Well, I've stood on that same mountain with Eric Kipke yeah. many times. And I've asked Eric how it was that he made it. Number one, he was in very good shape. Number two, he didn't stop to debate a decision whether to deploy or not. Those are the two decisions he made to get over that hill and make it out alive. Very good shape. Don't stand and debate a decision. Go for it. Those are the two things that saved his life. And he'll tell you that. You know, I remember teaching him in a class where both of his arms were bandaged, laying on a tabletop. You know, I'll never forget that. And then to have this conversation with him about what went on that day. I've timed myself from that lunch spot to the top of that ridge. I would have never made it without a backpack. Yeah. I mean, that's just in my tennis shoes, my hiking shoes, and going full speed. So it's going to take people like you, Preston, that are doing research in your group about these things with mission-critical teams to continue that work and come forward in our fire community to help us understand the things that we that we don't understand. We don't know what we don't know. And I'm a perfect example. You know, when I first visited with you for the few weeks that we visited with, my thought process finally started coming together about why we were doing things the way we were doing them and why we continue to do those things. As I said in the early part of this, and we'll start to, to, to come to the close soon, and and just that we have a situation now, and I'm and I'll self-indict here. I'm an East Coast guy. And so I'm an East Coast guy, and wildland fire is not really something part of my growing up. Hurricanes were, sure, sure, but not not forest fires. And so what's interesting though is that as I started to work with the wildland firefighting teams and the incident management teams. What I've seen and from your story and others is you've got a system created in World War II using basic systems, human systems like small crews, using really basic technology that are spread out on teams like the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Park Service. Everyone has their own stuff. And that's not counting county fire and state fire and Cal fire and all these other agencies. And then you've got all these other interests, business owners, politics, the governors, all these other things. And we're asking this system, oh, and by the way, we've moved from a fire season to a fire year. And we're seeing fires that are bigger, they're hotter, they're moving faster, and they're encroaching cities. And we're asking 20-year-olds who basically applied for a seasonal job to be the determinant of whether or not Los Angeles is going to recover from a fire that's encroaching. And I'm being a little extreme here, but not a lot. And I think as a country, all of us need to be invested in not asking you folks to just figure it out, but for us to understand that we all have a vested interest to make sure that wildland fire and incident management teams have the resources to not only do better at their work, but to start asking some fundamental questions, which is, what is their work, right? Because the days where it's just put out the fire, I don't think we can just say that anymore. I'll open that up to you, Roddy, because that's an outsider's view. Well, you're exactly right. And I've always asked a question. I've asked this to the chief of the Forest Service up to the Secretary of Agriculture. Is the Forest Service a land management agency or are they an emergency incident management team? Are we going to continue to do 
land management or are we going to go do fire suppression? Because, you know, 70% of the Forest Service budget or more now is fire suppression. You know, 30% is land management. But we're a land management agency. We haven't gotten to the point where we're where we said, forget about land management agencies and goals and responsibilities to manage land. We're, we're just going to go do emergency response. That's where we're at. None of those agencies, Park Service, all the Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Indian Affairs, Forest Service, none of them have come to the conclusion that we're an emergency response team. We're land management agencies trying to do something that we've never done before with a limited budget and a limited amount of resources. And there has been discussion of let's just hire emergency response people and leave them in those positions. And that's what they do. Never went very far because managers like myself as a district ranger are saying, I need these people to stay home to do prescribed fire, to do timber, to do range, to do recreation, to do those other things. I can't afford to have them gone 300 days a year doing emergency response. So, so no, I, I totally agree that we put ourselves in a position where we have a, a lot of resources that are seasonally that are asked to do things that they have no clue of what's coming. I mean, the navigating uncertainty, who knows what's out there? I mean, I've went from killing chickens to hurricanes to a flood, you know, to a sawmill on fire with sawdust. I went to the space shuttle recovery. So, you know, these are things we've not even heard of before. So you talk now. You're, now we're moving from an incident management team to pressing fire to putting them into an element that they've not ever seen or done before. Yeah. So now we've been we've even added more complexity. Yeah. Sadly, I was part of the academic review of the recent El Dorado fatality that happened this last summer. And when in one of the interviews with one of the folks that survived that fire or one of the people that worked that fire without incident, one of the things that he said, he said, the thing that bothers me the most, he said, is that, you know, that the fire service won't even call us firefighters. Our actual label, I believe, is I, I'm, I get, might get this wrong, sir. Brad, you might correct me. But I think is forest technician or far or forestry technician. Is that accurate? Yeah, you, you get hired on either as a recreation technician or a forestry technician or a range technician. Those are the technical terms for seasonal employment. And sometimes your full-time job is a forestry technician. Yeah, I mean, you're not called a hotshot crew member or, I mean, there are engine operators and there are superintendent positions but and squad boss positions. But other than that, you're just another ground pounder. You're just a forestry technician. And the problem, his point was, he said, look, President, here's the deal. I'm, I, I'm not doing seasonal work anymore. They're asking me to work all year round fighting fires, but they won't call me a wildland firefighter even if I die fighting a fire. And he says, and right over there, that city will pay me not hourly wages, but yearly wages with benefits if I go to work in San Diego or LA in their fire departments. He says, so we're gonna get to a point pretty soon where we're just not gonna be able to get bodies to do the work. And already we're seeing a lot of shortages. They're seeing a lot of jobs that are staying open. They can't 
can't find people to fill them. And so we're going to have to sooner rather than later, take a hard look at how we're managing the talent for wildland fires and for the forest service. Yeah. There's no comparison with salaries and we've lost, we've lost thousands of, of, of individuals that went to work for Cal fire, you know, County fire departments because it's twofold. Those counties can dispatch their resources to an incident and then bring in other resources to take the place of those vacancies and they'll get paid for those as well. So it's kind of like a, okay, I'll send my people off and the fire will pay for them. And then the county will pay for me to bring in resources behind them. So it's a good deal. Forest Service, I've always said, they don't get paid enough and they work too damn hard. Yeah. I can't thank you enough for this conversation. And I'm not closing it off, but I'm going to start driving us towards the end. And one of the things that we always ask people on these team casts is that, you know, when you look back on your career and, and dealing with elite leaders in critical environments, if you were to look back at Rowdy when he was first starting in 1986 at 27, what advice, what are the kinds of things you advice you'd give him to like do differently Monday? Like what, what would you say, hey, on Monday, try the la- these couple of things or think about these things? I have a couple of old sayings. One of them is when I was that age, I'd have jumped off a 20 foot cliff to suppress a single tree fire. You know, there was just, you were heroic, you, you know, you got hazard pay, you were doing something that was responsible. You could see the end of the tunnel, you could put the fire out and it was all good. When I ended my career, I, I didn't care if I put a fire out or not. So one thing I would say is I grew up in a task-oriented family. Everything was about doing the job and getting it done. And it didn't matter how you went about doing it. You just did it. And when I ended my career, it was more people-oriented. It was more about how to take care of people. And I think if you look at some videos that's been done of some people that commented about that. I think I ended my career with the thought process of taking care of people because those are the people that will come back and work for you. Those are the people you take care of that want to work for you. When you're task oriented, that's not necessarily the case. So the other thing I always used to tell people and it kind of hits home with them is I used to ask them, on every incident I was on, is this the mountain you want to die on? Yeah. That's a hard statement, but people recognize that. They understand that, that no, this probably isn't the mountain I want to die on. And so that gets them to thinking a little bit about how they're going to take care of themselves and how, they, how they're going to continue to do what they're doing. Because sometimes they need that awareness of, well, this could be that mountain. Yeah. If you're not paying attention to the things that you need to pay attention to. And I would say the other thing is take time to learn a little bit about fire behavior. It seems like nobody wants to take time to sit on a mountain and look at a fire and watch it progress and understand really the nature of what it's doing. Most of the time we, we just don't take the opportunity. I used to take, several crews at a time and say, okay, let's just pull back and let's just watch and just watch how fire behavior 
responds and, and moves around and how terrain drives fire and wind flows and, and all kinds of events. You know, you know, up on the Payette, they have down canyon winds at nighttime. I never knew that. I never heard about the Salmon River breaks, about you work your guts out in the daytime to suppress the fire next morning, you wake up and it's exploded. You wonder why. Well, all the warm air, it, you know, off the river rises. And then when it cools in the nighttime, blows all the fire down canyon. Well, we've never brought up to believe that fire burns downhill. Yeah. I would tell people, learn patience and and watch and learn. I think those are other critical things that, that need to take place. And, to, you know, just learn to take care of your people and not be afraid to flight when the time comes. You know, you live another day. Some of us don't. Some, some of us haven't taken that opportunity to live another day. Speaking of live another day, my understanding is that since you've retired, you are a legitimate, no kidding cowboy. You have cattle and all of it. Is that an accurate statement? Well, I was, I was kind of brought up a little on a ranch, and then I married my wife. Her father had a ranch, and since they've all passed away and her and I have inherited the ranch, it's like running a mission-critical team. Uh, you never know when a cow's calving, when you're going to have to pull one, when one's fell in a ditch, when it's time to feed them. So that's my residue. I knew a couple of years ago that that's what I was going to do. And I have no regrets. You know, do I miss the bureaucracy? No. Do I miss the people that work hard and try to accomplish that? Absolutely. You know, I miss, I miss that part of, of the job. And I still have tons and tons of phone calls, people calling me, what do you think I ought to do, this and that, which, which keeps me upbeat, makes me think that I'm worthy of... Uh, some kind of direction or some kind of influence in their life. But, you know, I knew when it was time to go. And so another saying I have is mentor, 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 and yep. then get the hell out of the way. As long as you're in that position, mentoring doesn't do no good. You've got to move out of the way to allow those individuals to move up into your spot. I've yep. told hotshot superintendents that for many years. Yep. We don't need you to be a hotshot superintendent for 30 years. We need you to be a hotshot superintendent for 10 years. And then we need you to move on to help the leadership of the organization. That's fantastic. I understand, and we'll post this, that there is a video from Wildfire Today about Rowdy Muir. And so I'll post that because uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm super interested in taking a look at it. Well, you know, my good friend, Steve Jackson, there was a small group here that wanted to do a video about my career. And so they interviewed a couple of people that I guess they either paid a whole lot of money or something to say nice things about me, but they did a really good job of the video and I've gotten a lot of feedback about it. So, you, you know, Preston, I've had a wonderful career and I, I say that, you know, I had an opportunity to play professional baseball. When I got out of high school, I had a number of scholarships that I turned down. You know, I thought, what would I have done after that? And to take the path that I took, I've just been totally blessed. I've met some, some really great people. I've been to some really great places. I've done some things that probably people will never do in their lifetime. It's been, it's been a tremendous experience and ride. 
you know, and I hope to continue, you know, to, to reach out to people and share my knowledge of wildland fire suppression. Just because I retire doesn't mean that I'm not in a situation where I am not available to still continue the, the effort because, you know, what you're doing is a tremendous thing. It opens the world up to, to why mission critical teams are, are doing what they're doing. And, and I would say if there's anything that we really need to work on is, is decision-making. I, I just think that's crucial, how, whatever aspect that takes. Well, I'll give you a moment in a moment uh, to give any final thoughts. But the one thing I just do want to thank you for is a lot of times these days, uh, people forget that our republic is dependent on citizens being of service to it, of choosing the harder path and being of service to the country in a variety of ways. And uh, I know the country is is better because you decided to join Wildland Fire and look after the country for your decades of service. And so I just want to thank you that in a genuine way and just say it's a powerful, powerful thing. And with that, I didn't know if you had any last-minute comments or thoughts to share with, with the audience, and then we'll go ahead and close this down. Well, I, I would just close with this. We talked to individuals that are saying that they are seeing things in wildland fire that they've not ever seen before. Complexities are getting, you know, larger and, and more complex. But I think it's because we're going through a generational change. If you look back and do some studying, you know, in the 1870s to the 1918s, you know, we we lost 2,000 people in fire suppression. You know, we had some of the largest fire events ever known to man back in those days. And, And so from there to now has been kind of a lag. And I've talked a little bit to you about this. You know, this 110, 120, 150-year cycle of stand replacement, you know, I think we're in that era now where we're going to continue to have these large stand replacing fires because it's been that long since we had them before. And so I think this new generation that's coming, I shouldn't say new generation, a younger generation, they've not seen what's ahead of them. And some of us, like my age or a little older that's retired, kind of saw some of those earlier years, you know, and saw some of that fire behavior and saw some of the things that happened then. But I'm a firm believer that we have a new generation, a younger generation that's been in a lag that hasn't seen that kind of fire behavior and complexity. And so we're talking to individuals that are saying, I've never seen this kind of stuff before. And so so I think it's important to get that group of individuals on board with what the future might hold, you know, for a while. That there might they might see this for the next five or ten years. Yeah, and I think um, that's a probably a good place to start, which is that regardless of, of what we want or believe, that the complexity will be increasing and it will be getting harder. But that just means that we got to start preparing for it now and that we as Americans and we have the resources and the willpower and the historical legacy to to get it done. We just have to have the will and the understanding. And I think because of folks like yourself and others, I'm confident we'll figure it out. It just, we got to just keep after it. Yeah, that's the key point. Keep after it. 
don't let it shake you up, you know, take time to let it absorb, be a little patient, all those kind of things are, are going to help you out as we move forward. Yeah. Rowdy, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it very, very much. And uh, obviously, if there's anything we can do for you, let us know. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And I will talk to you next time. Thank you again for listening to our TeamCast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at janice at missioncti.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at missioncti.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.